welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business and economics. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Bartnika. So Sarah, you know, one thing we hear about a lot when we're writing the newsletter and just doing this job is productivity. Uh, but I'm a little bit embarrassed to tell you that I don't really understand much about productivity, like what it is or why it is or how it changes. Uh, but maybe you know a little bit more than I do. Do you have a, a strong grasp on this issue? When I think of productivity, what comes to mind is like little robots scurrying along a factory floor or like me writing an article really quickly. But I'm right. not sure how either of those things ties into the bigger picture of what productivity is supposed to do, right? Which is supposed to raise our standard of living, make our economy more competitive on the world stage, and overall just like unlock all of these benefits that, you know, we've been kind of losing out on as productivity growth slows. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, we hear a lot about productivity, especially around elections. People, politicians will talk about how we need to increase our productivity canada's productivity is is falling during uh, our all hands at the peak <laughs> and well i mean usually what i think <laughs> of when people say that is oh so you want me to work harder for the same amount of money like is that what we're talking about here you want me to do more with the same amount of resources is that what productivity is perhaps it I is think a lot of people feel that way i think they do uh i think they do but we're going to dive into that in this episode and figure out what productivity really is, especially when you take it out to a society-wide, economy-wide level. And we've got a great guest on to walk us through all of that today. William Huggins is a lecturer in finance and business economics at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, where he teaches courses in corporate finance, economics, and statistics, along with financial history. Will, thanks for coming on the podcast. Happy to be here, man. So let's start off with a basic definition here, because I, for one, am slightly confused about this concept. Explain to us what is productivity? How is it measured? Why is it important? What makes it go up and down? Just give us the, the basic high-level overview. Okay, um, I'll give it to you in two ways. Uh, the simple way is the idea that we can get more stuff out with less stuff in. That's productivity. Uh, and you are more productive if you can get more output for the same amount of output or inputs. Uh, so that, that's the basic concept. Now, how we measure it um, depends on the scale you're looking at. If you're looking at efficiency of an individual person's productivity, we can look at like average labor product. But usually when we're talking about this at a macro level, we have to try to spread it out over every company, over the entire country. Uh, and so we usually end up using aggregate numbers like GDP. Uh, the challenge to using aggregate numbers, of course, is that you are literally bundling everything up together and then dividing it by some number most of the time, which means you lose an incredible amount of definition, right? Like when we talk about like income per capita, right? You often get this idea that, oh, Canadians are doing okay. But the truth is that some people are doing really badly and some people are extraordinarily wealthy and that's just not captured in average numbers. So when we talk about national level productivity, we're talking about one of those fuzzy numbers that is an aggregate by definition. And what we do to measure productivity, uh, there was a way that they came up with doing this in the 20th century. It's pretty straightforward. Um, they start off with how much GDP changed from one period to the next. 
Then they try to take out the part of that that's inflation. So that way it's not just, you know, we're measuring, you know, there's tw- you know, twice as much activity, but the value of the currency got cut in half. So it's really the same amount. So once we cut out inflation, then we say, okay, well, what could have led to more output? Uh, and that could be more people, right? Yeah, we add an extra million people to your economy and you're going to make more stuff. Uh, it could be more kit. You give those people more tools and more equipment. Uh, and all of a sudden, they're going to make more stuff as well. Uh, and then finally, you've got what they call productivity or what's left over, right? There's the total gains that we had. This much was attributable to inflation, this much from more people, this from more kit. The little bit that's left over, that's the improvement in productivity. Um, economists call it multi-factor productivity because they recognize it's made up of a bunch of stuff. Um, decades and decades ago, we used to call it technology. So if anybody took an intro econ course, they would have heard about you know, the, the solo residual or technology. Modern economists call it multi-factor productivity because it's a bunch of different stuff that just allows us to get more with the same amount of people and the same amount of kit. So to make this very concrete for people, could you give us an example of what adding productivity or increasing productivity would look like in a specific business? You know, let's say a car manufacturing plant. Even simpler than that. Um, Let's just say we're going to dig a hole. You know, we're going to extend the Eglinton LRT, right? Uh, and so <laughs> maybe someday. You it's in a bunch of ways, right? That everybody knows that the job will get done faster if we just put more labor on it. Like more people digs faster. Okay, so that one's easy. You want more productivity, get more people together. Uh, one of the things that happens when you get more people is they can specialize. So you can have a digger, a person who makes lunch, a person who gets water, a person who does payroll. And so it becomes more efficient because you get specialized roles instead of having everybody just dig. The second thing uh, is when you start giving them shovels or backhoes, right? As soon as people aren't digging with sticks and their hands, all of a sudden they're productive. So adding kit uh, or capital makes it more useful. Then finally, you can have things like productivity. And one of the easy ways to think about productivity is how we organize the workers in that hole. Do we literally just take six people, give them six shovels and say, get in there and dig suckers. Like, no, no. Instead we're like, okay, here's how we're going to do this. These two people are at the front digging. These two people are moving the dirt out of the hole. These two people are then taking the dirt at the top of the hole to some other location. So we start to organize them as opposed to just having six people randomly digging around. We specialize their tasks. We organize them a little bit better and that leads to better productivity. So a lot of people think productivity is like better tech that we need the electricity for, but it's really just better organization. We see that in, in the history of military as well. Just having a better way to organize your fighters can completely change the battlefield. Interesting. So it's not about just bringing more people in to do the same job. It's not about just giving them better tools. It's actually the step that comes after that. Yeah, yeah it's the smarter. How do we work smart, right? How do we get people to, uh, like, even it's something as simple as opening lines of communication from employees on the front line to advise upper management about, hey, there's this stupid problem on the floor, we can fix it. Rather than waiting for management to recognize it, just having that feedback system is a tech, is a is effectively a technology for productivity enhancement. It shortens the evolutionary cycle for organizations. And then why do people care about it? You know, you'll hear <sighs> about productivity discussed in the media quite a bit in the business press. People, you'll often hear people saying Canada has a productivity problem. This is a perennial feature of election campaigns here. What are we going to do about productivity in Canada? Uh, why does it matter? Oh, productivity matters because at the end of the day, uh, it's how we get more from less. 
given that Earth Day just rolled by a couple of days ago from a sustainable economics point of view, let's just put it this way. Uh, it takes us about halfway through the year before we hit the point of uh, unsustainability, where if we were to stop all economic activity at about June 15th or something like that, it would be sustainable. But it's all the stuff that we do extra uh, that's not sustainable. The idea being, of course, that we are taking twice as much out of the world as it can supply to us. And this is creating tons of problems. So if we want to avoid some of these problems, we need to be more productive. We need to get more out of the energy that we use. We need to get more out of the people we have. We need to get more out of the land we have. Because ultimately, we're going to have to start using less unless we want to just burn the whole lifeboat. I'm so excited to dive into some specific examples. But first, I want to touch on how you go about unbundling some of those numbers that you say go into like that top line kind of productivity estimate. So how do we know what's happening from sector to sector when it comes to productivity? Usually we look at uh, outputs per unit of inputs. One of the easy ways to do it, uh, ILO, the International Labor Organization uses it a lot, uh, is labor productivity. Basically, what is the total amount of GDP generated for each hour of labor in that particular industry? Because we have payroll stats, since they remit it to CRA, we know exactly how many hours they paid for, and we can add up the total amount of revenue in that industry, so we can pretty quickly see how much revenue is generated by this much activity. Now, the smart way to do it, of course, is to look at value add per amount and per number of hours, because you will get intermediate products that you bought and then you added a little bit of value to. So the idea is to look at sort of value add per unit of time. So and the idea is that if we can add more value with the same thousand hours of time, awesome. So are there areas of the economy that are performing better than others? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. But it, it's not, it's challenging to understand why, because they're not all on, on an even playing field, right? Uh, one of the easy ones that always has a hyper amount of productivity and they, uh, the industry groups love to tout it out, uh, is the energy industry. The energy industry, because it does not require very many people to operate it, generates an enormous amount of GDP per hours of labor. Uh, extractive industries are the same thing. Uh, in my hometown, there are about 15% of the number of workers in the mines as there used to be back in the 70s, and yet output from the mines is higher today than it was then. So in many cases, a sector that uses a lot of technology will often appear to have enormous labor productivity. So is that why the services sector kind of drags down the rest of the numbers? Yeah, uh, because at the end of the day, you know, how much kit can you really put into making a coffee faster or doing someone's taxes faster or being a musician who plays live? Right? <laughs> There's, it's not like if I give me three guitars, I can create more value at the show, right? I can only play one at a time. Therefore, I can only create so much value. You mentioned the mines in the town that you grew up, and that Sorry. makes me think about what the impact of productivity is on workers who are, who are doing the job. Is it a positive thing for workers when productivity goes up, or does it mean there are fewer people needed to actually work in these businesses? What's the relationship between you know, how people who work in the economy do personally and our national productivity figures? Okay. Uh, to answer this properly, there is what can happen and there's what does happen. Okay. 
what can happen is you can spread around the prosperity any number of ways, right? You could have a, a worker co-op that's owned directly by the workers and all the productivity gains goes directly to their pocket. No problem. Uh, on the other hand, you could have a situation like we've seen for most of the last 40 years where worker productivity hasn't translated into real wages for workers. Uh, and that's been a major theme with supply side economics for the last 40 years. Unfortunately, we have been leaning into making it easier for the supply side of the equation as opposed to the demand side. I think we're probably going to see a swing back over the back half of my life, but we'll see if that turns out. Can you clarify what you mean by that? The supply side and the demand side of oh. the equation? Yeah, the, the supply side is usually when we think about um, like a basic kind of business, the most basic way to describe the inputs of a business is that there's labor and there's kit or there's capital, right? There, there's stuff and there's people. Uh, and who gets the gains from our activity? Who captures it? Is it the workers or is it the people that own the machinery? And, and that's sort of the way to see it, right? Uh, like when I, when we run a Subway restaurant, is it the workers who make more money when they run through more sandwiches or is it the owner of the franchise? So that, that's sort of the idea there. When you're looking at how the gains are spread around, it could be spread around any way we like. How it's gone for the last 40 years has not really been very handy for the workers. Uh, a lot of productivity gains have not really translated into higher real wages or purchasing power for workers, unfortunately. Those that have captured it have largely been uh, in what we would call creative industries. I don't mean like bloggers. Uh, I mean like computer coders. People mm -hmm. coming up with, you know, biotech advances, stuff like that. Um, so that's what I mean by creative sort of industries as opposed to routine industries. Um, something where you have to keep doing a different thing. All the time, those people have been earning more of the benefits of productivity. But if you're in a more routine job, routine services, routine labor, uh, you really haven't gotten most of the benefits of productivity enhancement. So if I'm, you know, just a ordinary Joe Schmo, which I absolutely am, then why should I care about this? <laughs> is, this oh, is this something that okay. I should care about, actually? Like personally, like, does it matter to me? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Macro wise, it does matter a little bit, right? Uh, because at the end of the day, if we lump everything together, if we have a largely unproductive economy, what it means, or rather, I shouldn't say an unproductive economy, because we have a really productive economy. But if we fail to keep making it more productive, we're going to have a hard time facing the headwinds that our economy will face in the next 50 years. Broadly speaking, we have a huge amount of old people down, coming down the pipeline, and we have a massive transition ready for our energy sector. We have to completely rewire our economy for aging and sustainability. Where are the resources for this going to come from unless we try to make things more efficient? Hmm. Unless we can grind out much more output from each person and each dollar that we have, we're just going to, we're going to come up short. Eventually somebody's grandfather is going to end up with cat food for lunch instead of a proper meal. And if we don't want our elders to be in a bad place, and if we want to be able to succeed at this energy transition, so we don't say, I don't know, wipe out the human race in 500 years, then we better start thinking about productivity. Sorry, but how does that motivate people still on an individual level? Because we can sit here and we can talk about how the how productivity is good for increasing, you know, our standard of living. It's good for kind of like the future of the generation that's kind of here and in, in, in the workforce. But how did what kind of incentives are there any incentives at play at like an individual level, I guess, right now to day to day that are incentivizing people to become more productive? We can make them. Uh, an easy example uh, of an incentive for productivity, you might say, um, is the carbon tax. 
which sounds really weird to most people. But the idea is that it's designed ultimately to get people to shift their consumption from one category of energy products to another category of energy products. Um, and in that sense, what it's doing is it forces people to become more efficient. It forces people to be like, do I really have to drive to the store? Do I really have to drive to see my friend for like sixth time this week to have a smoke in the parking lot? Like that, that's sort of the thing that comes up with it. As soon as you start making people pay the funnel, the full cycle cost of their activities, they start to wonder whether or not maybe they should. You know, it's like, for example, uh, one of the ones that they did years ago uh, was start putting little service fees on things. And in general, uh, many people just revolt automatically at the principle of a service fee to access anything because I'm a taxpayer and it's supposed to be free. The problem is you'll get some people that want to, because it's free, think they should go to see their doctor every week and turn it into a social visit while that's running up the, you know, the bill for the taxpayers. So we want to sometimes speed bump people from just using a thing like it's limitless. Uh, and that leads to more efficiency. So things like a carbon tax uh, actually do that a little bit. So there's policy interventions that you could make that, you know, create incentives for people to, I guess, spread around the benefits of productivity in a way that's more personalized. Is that what yeah, you're saying? If you want something that's really easy, like really basic, you just do profit sharing with your employees. You give them stock options. You give every employee stock options. Every employee who works at a co-op cares about productivity because it goes directly to them. Everybody who banks with a credit union cares about the productivity of their capital because it immediately results in savings for them. So it's really trying to line up some of these incentives. And I think, unfortunately, um, we don't spend enough time motivating employees to care about this. We try to pretend that they should be loyal to the firm or some other ridiculous thing. But like, most of the time, your you know your job's been posted before your obituary, so most firms aren't very loyal <laughs> to their employees, okay? uh, and yet they're expecting their employees to come to bat and to hand over all of the fruits of productivity uh, to the right. capital class, right. or the you know the owners of capital. Um, so my concern, ultimately, um, when it comes to productivity, is not that we don't need it; we absolutely need it, um, but it's not necessarily being evenly spread around. Okay, well, you mentioned something earlier that I want to get to as well, which was you said that Canada is, actually does have a fairly productive economy. So could you talk a bit about how we compare to uh, the rest of the world when it comes to productivity? Um, we are about 10th out of almost 200 countries in terms of That's just looking at like sort of GDP per capita, which is a really rough way of measuring the accumulated productivity of your economy over time. Right. Uh, however, you would still have to filter it out for, you know, more people and more capital and stuff like that to really measure productivity. Um, Canada has a lot of things that help make it productive. Um, so some of these are pretty obvious when we live next to the biggest consumer market in the world. So that's super convenient for us, quite frankly. Um, and they happen to need re natural resources on a regular basis. So a lot of our economy is designed around extractives to sell to them. Uh, and, and that makes us relatively prosperous. That generates a lot of wealth in our society. It doesn't always mean it's evenly spread, but it generates a lot of wealth in our society. Um, so looking, strictly speaking, at things like our natural resources, that's been a big help. Another big thing that's added to us uh, is security. Like, it's pretty safe in Fortress North America, right? Like the last time we had any sort of major fight, the Americans were shooting at themselves, and it was 150 years ago. 
So we're pretty safe, all things considered, right? Like we haven't had like cities burned to rubble or things like that, like so many other countries have over the last hundred years. So that's been really productive for allowing us to sort of build up that base productively. Uh, we have excellent edu uh, education systems and we have very good legal systems that makes it attractive for investors to want to put their work in uh, or put their capital to work in Canada rather. So a combination of security, good institutions, uh, having the Americans right beside us and having them like us um, has really made it easy for Canada to succeed. Now, there are things that make it hard for us to succeed. Yeah, too. And this is where we need productivity is yeah. to get over the things that are harder for us. Um, our geography, everybody likes saying, yeah, Canada's beautiful, but like, man, our geography is rugged. Uh, if you were to break us down by sort of natural countries, you might say by like watersheds or climatological regions, there are like seven Canada's in the space of legal Canada. Uh, and this means of course, that their economies are organized very differently. And the big problem is that they also don't trade with each other very much. Uh, so you end up with these regions within Canada that are almost completely isolated from east-west trade, but they do lots of north-south trade. Uh, so geography has been a really big problem for us. Like trying to get across the shield was a problem when they were building the CPR, is a problem when they're building Trans-Canada Pipeline. Uh, it's a problem if you've ever tried to drive it in the spring with the moose. Uh, like the shield is just tough for business, and it's tough to help integrate you know parts of the country together. The Rockies does the same thing. Right? Like Vancouver to Calgary is you know, uh, in a straight line, not all that far, but there are mountains in the way. And so obviously this, this creates a lot more complications for us to economically integrate. So geography has been a big challenge for us. Uh, 90% of our population is all like huddled up on the U.S. border, of course. So we have all this big space, but we're not really using it. We're growing trees. Um, that's been a big challenge. Another big problem um, is that we have wicked, stupid trade barriers between our provinces. Uh, we are almost organized like a series of little countries because that's what was necessary for confederation to work 150 years ago. Uh, on the other hand, every little province is their own special little kingmaker, and they try to protect their own local uh, industries. And this protectionism within Canada is our big, the biggest rock holding us back. Hmm. Uh, we don't have enough interprovincial trade. People who are skilled in one province can't necessarily make use of their skills in another province. Uh, it really holds up labor mobility, makes it a real problem to move around, right? Like if you're a lawyer, you deal with uh, in Ontario with the Ontario Law Society. If I'm an electrician from Saskatchewan, I can practice in Saskatchewan. So it becomes really problematic at the end of the day. And we don't do a lot of East-West trade because of geography, but we could be doing more if it wasn't for the regulations that we'd have that are holding us back internally. We only got our first supposed free trade deal between the provinces in the last 10 years. So I think this is a useful example because to me, it's not obvious what the connection is between those trade barriers and lower productivity. Can you just explain ah. the the mechanism there? Yeah, yeah. What happens is you end up with, uh, instead of developing sort of national level champions, you end up with a lot of small regional markets. And a lot of people think, oh, that's very cute. I like going to a small town where I can get specialized, you know, cheese or specialized wood product from this town, but it's costly. You're not, when you're a small business, you can't necessarily invest in the newest innovations that make you the best, most efficient products. And in a globalized world, you're competing with everything on Taobao. So unless you're, you know, selling at a farmer's market where people want to pay the markup for a local product, 
or you're paying at a local craft market where people want to pay that markup, they're going to buy it cheaper on Timu. And so the real challenge for Canada is that we don't have the opportunity to take advantage of scale because we have so many fractured little regional markets that fail to integrate. We have a handful of businesses that do. And unfortunately, even though they've grown to be large national champions, there's a totally different problem that emerges for them. So our Rogers, our Telluses, our RBCs, they're coddled from international competition. Our regulators give them space to just run these inefficient oligopolies that extract rents from Canadians on a regular basis, pay the highest cell phone data fees in the world, highest mutual fund fees in the world. And it's because we have these protected giant oligopolies at one end of the scale and these tiny little inefficient companies at the other end of the scale. So we need to move the little companies into more efficiency by offering a bit more support, by offering them access to bigger markets, by trying to create policies that make it possible to have interprovincial trade. Like the fact that you can't buy Niagara wine in Montreal is stupid. Not the fact that started like, on the wine. Oh my God. The fact that I have to like, it, it's a problem for me to drive like three cases of beer across the border, like from Hull to Ottawa. It, it's just weird. Uh, and it's inefficient at the end of the day. And it prevents us from integrating some of these markets. Uh, it breeds less competition because I'm the only brewery in my local market. No one competes with me. So why should I invest in better tech? And if I'm a big Canadian bank, I don't face a lot of international competition in my protected domestic market. So I will slowly adapt, right? They are, they're very protected. Uh, they've got nice, big, fat profit margins, and they are slow. They're very, very slow to innovate. They don't need to innovate. And so they don't. So if a key piece of heightening productivity is getting provinces to work better together, what does that first step look like? Hmm. Um, you would need to get a bunch of premiers together and you would have to right. get them to honestly recognize that they will have to give up some of their individual fiefdoms. This is going to be politically very hard because every province has their own protected industries that they want to make sure thrive so that there's employment, so that there's payroll for the province. Uh, every province sort of stands alone, a little bit like a mini country in that regard. Uh, and so the idea is trying to, how do we take some ideas from the European Union? Because they've actually got more labor mobility in the EU between countries than we have in Canada within a country. Doesn't make Can we talk a little bit about the EU? Like, what do they do really well that we haven't been able to exercise um, well, one of the main reasons that the EU worked um, in a way that Canada didn't is we haven't really had an overriding military threat and like bombed out cities and millions of dead bodies. I hate to be dramatic about it, but that sort of thing has a really galvanizing effect on the idea that we should get along for mutual prosperity because, you know, fighting each other with knives every 10 years um, does not lead to prosperity. So the Europeans kind of having gone through the crucible of imperial destruction have realized that the kit that made them the most advanced region in the world has escaped and that individually no country of 5 million people is ever going to rule an empire like that again. So they have to band together. Canada hasn't hit that point yet. We're just like, whatever, our seven regions just keep trading with America and the, the, our biggest fear is that the country falls apart and we just become American. Uh, to say something highly contentious, just for a moment, we have to do the thought experiment. Canadians would be better off substantially in terms of their standard of living if we just all became American today. We're going to have to explain that. Yeah. Our, our, <laughs> economically speaking, we would all be better off. 
we would have access to cheaper services. We would have uh, overall a higher GDP per capita, right? We would have access to better, cheaper stuff. We would be integrated much more with our trade partners to the South. So broadly speaking, there's an economic argument that says you should just join America. And in fact, we've seen all kinds of stuff from like the annexation proclamation in the 1800s, where a bunch of Montreal merchants were like, America, just take us over already, right? Like we, we saw all kinds of stuff like this, our Canadian history, and it's always been a weird tension. And so the interesting part of that, not to digress too much, is how do we make the argument that Canada's worth keeping? Is there something valuable about being not America that's worth like $10,000 a year worth of prosperity? If we can't come up with the answer to that question, man, what are we doing? I guess a question that looks at kind of the global picture too, is America still the place to be looking at the Canadian perspective? We've seen kind of productivity decline a little bit. People are ringing, al or, people are ringing alarm bells. I would love to know in your view whether or not that's justified. But like, is America doing that much better because you can't help but look at other parts of the world and see like, whoa, like there's some really interesting economic growth happening. And are we going to kind of start getting beat out by other, like other kind of rising countries? Um, America, I, if I, if I aggregate it, yeah, yeah, still rocking. Things are fine. Uh, within the aggregation, there are obvious, like the wheel, one of the wheels is coming off the bus, right? Like there are real problems in America at the bottom end of the economic scale. Uh, if you do routine work and you don't have a lot of education under you, it is a bad time to be in America. And it's going to be bad for the next 30, 40, 50, probably forever. Uh, you, you need to invest in upskilling people. Um, but the truth is that there is a significant portion of America for whom this is not working. Um, but on the other hand, if you are in one of those creative type things where you have non-routine work, America is the place to be in a lot of cases. You've got opportunities to make substantially more money, uh, enormously more money, quite frankly. Um, you've got more opportunities to move up between employers. You're not dancing between the same four companies within your industry as you try to move diagonally. There's a lot of opportunities um, in America that just simply don't exist in Canada because of the scale of what's going on. Now, broadly, uh, if I take America versus rest of world for a while, they do have some awesome advantages. Um, they have kick-ass geography. They have like the juicy part of North America, quite frankly, the biggest piece of, air of contiguous arable land in the world overlaid with a navigable water system. Awesome. Uh, they have the intercoastal waterway system on the East Coast, which is great for moving goods, super cheap and protected from storms. Um, they've got... <clears throat> enormous moats, about 5,000 miles wide on either side, protecting them from any potential land invaders. They otherwise integrated economically with their neighbors north and south. So security-wise, they're awesome. They have pretty good institutions, quite frankly. Uh, they do institutional innovation. They like to try new stuff. So that's good about their society. They're not going to just sort of freeze at something that works. Uh, and interestingly enough, their demographics are better than ours. Americans are having kids. Canadians aren't really having as many kids. Americans overall are having more kids and more people are moving there. Um, if you look at 25, 30 years from now, Americans will be younger than Brazilians, which is weird from how we think about it. But a lot of people in America still having kids, young people still moving in, still expanding. But in a lot of countries, it's just collapsing. So America's got some good opportunities. Um, they're our pacemaker when it comes to measuring productivity. They're always going to be better than us because the geography is better, because they have higher population densities. 
but we should always be shooting for that. We should be like, yeah, but we have more resources per person. So how come we don't have a high tech economy in the same sort of way? Um, that's what's really the question we ought to be asking ourselves is there are certain kinds of industries that are really productive at the end of the day, but we don't have much invested in them. Uh, we don't have much in terms of uh, healthcare industries. So that's one thing that's sort of lacking. Uh, we don't have much in the tech space. Uh, and a lot of that stuff is deemed highly productive at the end of the day. Uh, if you can come up with medical patents, you can export that stuff all over the world. Are there countries, let's put America just to the side because mm. of the all the sort of built-in advantages that you just mentioned. Are there countries that don't have those advantages that nonetheless are punching well above their weight when it comes to productivity? And what do they do? Japan. Japan, from a, from a geopolitics point of view, is... Uh, kind of a crappy piece of land to try to work with in the industrial era. They don't have nearly enough food to grow to feed their people. They don't have almost any natural deposits of industrial metals uh, or energy sources. So like they, they have to invade their neighbors to get oil and coal and bauxite and literally everything that makes a modern economy work. So like Japan should have been economically a failed state. That's why they tried to do that breakout move in the helped cause World War II, right? Was they wanted to get these resources they would need to do it autarky style, uh, but they failed. So Japan realized they're like, okay, so if we can't get the resources like this, how are we going to do this? Are we going back to the 1700s? Is this the plan? And they were like, well, instead we will integrate with America's security network. That'll keep us safe for a little while. And then America's got a big global trade system they're building. So that means we can just buy all the stuff we thought we had to invade people for. Okay, so what are we going to sell to them? And this is what where Japan came up with this sort of problem. What can we possibly sell to them in order to generate the capital to import stuff like food and energy that we need? Um, and so they came up with the idea. Part of this had developed um, during the late 1800s, early 1900s. But Japan had focused on trying to become a, a very technically strong economy because they knew they were always short of resources they were all always about efficiency and productivity. How do we get more with less? How do I get more rice out of this acre of land? How do I get slightly more steel out of this raw iron ore? How do I get slight, like one extra mile per gallon out of this fuel tank? Uh, and so it was a necessity that drove them necessarily to do it. But what enabled them to do it uh, is they had a good education and good financial system. And most important, they were able to integrate with the Americans. So the Americans were like, yeah, we'll cover your security for a little while. Just build a bunch of stuff and sell it to us. So Japan, that had a largely productive economy, uh, was able to do manufacturing cheap. They were the first sort of Asian tiger economy. And they were like, we're just going to build cheap stuff for America. And you learn and have a lot of experience running factories. They became key American factories supporting the Korean War, which gave them a lot of the uh, tech know-how to run massive industrial plants as well. Um, but ultimately, the Japanese had a good system. They had a good system, and that's what allowed them to overcome. It was good institutions. In fact, it was so popular that the Koreans just like wholesale copied their system. The Japanese system was called the Keiretsu uh, system post-World War II. Before that, it was called Zaibatsu. Uh, the Koreans, after they expelled the Japanese, were just like, huh, nice factories. We're just going to keep running this the exact same way that we did before, except we're going to call it a Cheball system. Uh, but it's otherwise the same sort of idea. So Korea, that also has tricky geography to work with, became remarkably successful by focusing on productivity by good institutional systems, good factory design, good worker integration. 
And that that's really allowed them to go far. Uh, America never had to do that, right? Like they just got a bunch of free good land. So like, honestly, they could make stupid policy mistakes for 20 years and they'd be fine. If Japan makes one policy misstep, things go wrong. So it's been sort of a mother of necessity to some extent that they had to get good. Otherwise the lights go out. Uh, whereas in America, they could fumble around a little bit and just sort of ride it. And that's Canada's disease. It's been easy to win as Canada. We haven't had to try. And so if we don't start trying, we're going to slowly coast while other people catch up and go a little bit past us. That's what's been happening the last 30 years. We've been coasting. Have uh, policymakers done anything in recent memory that has moved the needle on productivity? Um, I do like that interprovincial trade deal. I hope that it bears more fruit. <laughs> um, otherwise, we've done a few things. Uh, they tried to make it a little bit easier to um, support startups which I thought was interesting. Uh, so rules around crowdfunding in, you know, in the venture space. So you don't just have to deal with venture capitalists, which is nice. They tried to make it a little bit easier for people to fund startups so that you would get a little bit more innovation. Right? We don't need necessarily people to invent whole new things. We just need them to like make things slightly more efficient. And then you can sell that to a big firm and they <laughs> export that effectively all over their entire market. You know, if you can find a way to save, say, $1 on a $1,000 loan, sell that tech to RBC and watch them create lots of prosperity with it. Uh, but that's really what we need uh, is a lot more innovation. And so I've been happy to see investments in innovation services. I've been happy to see regulations changing around things like crowdfunding to make it easier for startups to get access to cash. Um, because we have a lot of very well-educated people in STEM fields in Canada, but we don't have necessarily good policies for converting that STEM research into innovation. We tend to focus a little bit much on trying to get engineers to invent stuff as though that's the secret to prosperity. Usually the secret to prosperity is just doing things marginally better. Hmm. Like I don't need a whole new vehicle. I just need the car to be slightly better. And if everybody focuses on just trying to make things a little bit better all the time, we can move that productivity needle. So even though an individual worker isn't going to change things, we're talking about like a thousand people or one person trying to move a rock. It's not going to happen. But if you get a thousand people, now we move that rock. At an individual level, how can people, I guess, set themselves up for success? Because we talk about, you know, reskilling, but there's not necessarily maybe the right programs or maybe the right funding. And so I guess like at an individual level, if you're not maybe part of one of those um, creative industries that have seen wages kind of move along down the line with productivity. I mean, how can workers kind of position themselves to uh, catch the wave, right? As certain industries maybe become more productive or Canada, you know, taps into unique successes here and there. It's going to sound weird because it's going to sound like I'm self-pitching. Um, education, post-secondary education, we need more. We balance about with the states in terms of undergrad education, but at the graduate level, they produce twice as many master's students per capita as we do. So we have lots of soldiers and no officers <laughs> at the end of the day, right? So we need people to have those grad level skills. Uh, we also produce few, way fewer PhDs than they do per capita. So we are missing some of those primaries. And part of the reason for this is because people who get PhDs and masters just go to the States. Right. This is part of the problem. We've always been dealing with brain drain issues. Um, but one of the things that would be nice is to try to find ways to keep, you know, the local talent local. Uh, one of the things I thought 
I saw that was really clever. Saskatchewan a few years ago introduced a plan to help pay off parts of student loans, provided people move to Saskatchewan. I think they were going to pay off like 20,000 bucks over four or five years. As long as you moved to Saskatchewan and stayed, they were just going to hand you money. Um, so that's always nice. Uh, I always thought the idea of exit scholarships would be good. Um, you know, if you graduate, you complete your degree. None of this is like giving money to people up front. Hey, here's some money. I hope you buy a nice stereo and spend it at the Lickbo. Um, instead, you give them scholarships when they graduate and be like, hey, so we're going to cut your student debt now that you graduated. And the higher your grades are, the less student debt you're going to have. That sort of thing, I think, goes far. It gives people a reason to care about their grades, to care about getting the skills, uh, and it makes education more accessible financially to them. Um, so I think the expansions in education would help. Uh, one of the other things that we need to do, I don't have a good program for it, though, uh, is sort of shifting the culture window on what should can middle-aged people go back to school? Because, man, I have a bunch of my friends who are middle-aged who are all very happy about the idea that they'll never have to go back to school. They've got this idea that going to school is something kids do or something proto-adults do that grown-ups don't do, uh, which is totally stupid. It's totally stupid, but it's mostly tied to the idea that they're like, well, I'm done that stage of my life now and I don't want to go back. So there's this idea that you know, you have, you're reinventing yourself. You have to give up your identity. You have to humble yourself to go to school. And that creates a barrier. Right. And if we could just get rid of that stupid culture barrier, it might make it easier for us to upskill people who are losing their jobs due to things like AI, automation, et cetera. And it would make it a lot easier for us to upskill first generation immigrants who are coming here. Their human capital is wasted. The second generations are superstars. We need as many as we can get. But the first gens, we're like wasting a whole pile of human capital by having veterinarians from Albania drive cabs. That's stupid. We could do better, but we don't. So I think there's a real big need for us to invest in education, particularly later uh, education. So people who are like mid-career, that needs to be there. And I think we need to lower the burden for young people to seek higher post-secondary education. Because if you're getting out of undergrad and you're already 80,000 bucks in debt, you look at a master's and you're like, yeah, <laughs> I don't need another 50 grand worth of debt for what, six bucks an hour? So yeah. unless we can really make that difference for people by cutting the cost of access, we're not going to get anywhere in terms of generating the skills necessary to spark innovation that will create the productivity that will make our society better off. There's a weird series of dominoes, but one of the key ones is making sure we finance education. In the last 30, 40 years, every time governments in Canada have had to choose between healthcare and education, they've chosen healthcare. It's a vote getter. It works. Young people don't vote. Old people vote. Old people don't care about education. Old people care about healthcare. So we have consistently underfunded education in this country and prioritized healthcare. It's not saying healthcare shouldn't be important. It's just that we should recognize the value in the long run. We're not going to be able to keep paying for that healthcare unless we have the educated workforce necessary to create the surplus to keep all those old people alive in a comfortable way. Right. Does that at all tie into why it's so difficult to get executives in this country. Like I can't help but think, but it's like really hard to hire CEOs to like grow big companies. We've been talking about this a lot with Shopify and those are the companies that ideally would drive innovation and productivity. Does, and is that the same conversation or is that just a totally different problem? It is. It's going to sound even more self-serving because not only do I provide <laughs> higher education services, but the specific area that we are lacking in is business education. 
we churn out fewer business grads per capita than our near peer, the United States. They are producing business people. They're producing entrepreneurs that know how to think about business and do net present value calculations and know about how to create value. We are producing not enough business grads. So I, I realize I teach graduate programs at a business school. So it sounds like I'm driving business to my own shop. Um, the fact remains that these are not even my conclusions, right? These are Roger Martin's conclusions, right? Um, this is a fantastic book, quite frankly, on the argument about what Canada needs to do in terms of enhancing productivity. It was written by my old boss at U of T like 10 years ago. Uh, but they and were what's it called what's just our listeners? Yeah. It's <laughs> Canada, what it is, what it can be. It's written by Roger Martin. Uh, who set up the Martin Prosperity Institutes. He does research on uh, productivity and cities. He literally wrote the book on this topic. Um, so I encourage, it's an easy enough read, but it also has some macro weight behind it. And Roger pointed this out 10 years ago, that the, we need more people trained in business school. We need more people trained um, at grad school. At the end of the day, this is we have a serious problem in Canada uh, in terms of the number of directors. Um, weirdly enough, my wife's a corporate lawyer, and she can tell you one of the major problems they run into uh, is overlapping directorates, right? Where you have just simply not enough skilled people to be a director of the thousands of companies that operate in this country. Like we have, what, like 3,000 mining and energy companies, and every one of those requires a board. So do we have 25,000 directors lying around? No, not unless they wear like six hats at a time. So that's usually what happens is you end up with directors who've got divided attention and it's hard for them to focus as much as they should necessarily on the individual companies before them. So we don't have enough management talent uh, that can focus on how to take existing processes and make innovations with them. We don't have enough talent to enable us to upscale our businesses from small entrepreneurial to large national and international scale businesses. Um, and ultimately, we need to have more skilled employees to fill those businesses with. We have to spend 20 years and we have to build out some more business schools. We're going to have to provide some scholarships to people. At the end of the day, if we don't become a more technical economy, um, there's not going to be enough taxes to pay for what we want and need as old people. Our parents will be okay, but it's going to suck when we get there if we don't start making it better now. I have one last question on technology. Um, just looking ahead a little bit, you see some presumably pretty big technological changes coming down the pike pretty quickly, specifically around artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you can speak to any theories that you might have or thoughts that you might have, recognizing that we're at an early stage of this, on the potential impacts of that on, on productivity. Um, I can put it this way. It seems obvious what's going to happen at this stage, uh, at least given the tools as we see them now. We're giving power armor to miners. That's basically what we're going to do. A lot of people feel that knowledge work is going to be threatened by this. Honestly, this is going to make knowledge work better and faster. Um, AI will enable, in the, not at the moment, but it will enable uh, immense time savings for, say, in uh, document review in the legal profession. Uh, AI will make auditing a lot more sophisticated in the future. Um, AI will help us, has already helped us to massively improve logistics flows around the world. So that's already happened in the back office. 
Um, AI has already taken marketing by storm in the last 10 years just by analyzing, you know, your ad preferences and trying to steer your eyes towards things that you're more interested in. Um, but it's going to have a big impact on what we would call routine knowledge work. If you're not doing creative knowledge work, you're done. Um, AI is coming for your job, just like every other machine has come for other people's jobs. It will take a long time, though. Like It's not like everybody's going to suddenly be out of a job next week. That's ridiculous. Uh, but over time, what we're going to see is that those jobs um, will steadily erode where it's possible. Um, but before everybody says this is a terrible problem, AI is going to take our jobs, let's remember that the workforce in a lot of countries is already shrinking because of aggregate demographic aging. Right, like the workforce in China has been shrinking for half a decade. There are fewer workers in China today than five years ago. We're, we're going to have the same sort of problem with mass retirement of baby boomers in Canada. If we don't keep backfilling with massive amounts of immigration, our workforce is going to shrink. The real trick is going to be how do we get more productivity out of our workers? Because with older society, we're going to need to have, I don't know, two or three times as many healthcare workers as we do right now. So how are we going to do everything else? There's going to be fewer people working at the Ford plant. And you can say, oh, that's terrible. We lost those jobs. But that's because we needed these people to work in other places. So at the end of the day, we're going to need a lot more people or we're going to need things like AI and automation to backfill some of that because we're going to have fewer people doing those jobs and we're going to need them to be more productive. I suspect, if anything, it's going to follow the same sort of path as extractive technologies did in mining, like in my hometown. There's going to be fewer people doing these jobs, and they're going to be more productive. Uh, and that'll open up a lot of uh, different opportunities. That'll lead to uh, us to be able to do a lot of different kinds of jobs that we're currently underserving our market. Now, if we free up jobs in manufacturing, that creates the space for the healthcare jobs that we need. The Japanese solution to their demographic inversion, because they all got super old too. They not only have like crappy right. geography, but they're also super old. So Japan's solution to this, as you can imagine, you know, there's a few possibilities. You can try to increase fertility. Almost nothing works for that. Uh, you could increase immigration, not in Japan. Uh, the other one is robots. So no surprise, what did Japan lean into? Robots. Uh, so my favorite example of automation, and it's in healthcare. Right? Not only are they getting little robots to run stuff around hospitals instead of orderlies, which I thought was pretty clever, but the cutest thing. So they had this problem with elders in um, retirement homes. They would get what they called the wanderers at night. They'd like look out the window as the sun's setting and just sort of you know wish anybody cared about them, and they'd just get up and walk away. And then like an hour later, it's dark and they don't know where the hell they are, and like people die, they miss their medication. Like it was a real problem. Because people were just sort of leaving their family members you know, in rest homes and the wanders was a major issue. So this Japanese company comes up with the cutest damn solution. Uh, they create this little robot called Paro. Uh, I think it's P-A-R-O. It's a <clears throat> robotic baby harp seal. It's soft, it's white, it purrs, it responds to being pet, it knows its name, it responds to your voice, it learns your voice. And what this has done is given old people something to love. Can't give cats to old people. They forget to change their litter box for three weeks or they don't walk the dog or, you know, like they didn't feed the fish and they die. So you can't do that with people that forget, but you've got a robot that, you know, is something they can love and is almost believable. And it has massively cut down their wander rates problem. Hmm. So Japan's solution, we don't have enough healthcare workers to watch all these people. 
give them robots. Like, no surprise, they went for the mecha solution. That's an interesting anecdote, and I suppose a happy one, but also in some ways a sad one. <laughs> yeah, check, check out what that what the Paru robot looks like, and you might not think it's so sad. You might be right. like, "That's super I'm sure they cool. Don't. I don't want yeah. one of those." We'd like. I might get one. Right. <laughs> yeah. Sit down and watch Netflix. And Maybe I'll be happy then too. <laughs> it can keep your Roomba company. Yeah, exactly. You can ride your Roomba around. <laughs> Okay, well, well, th- this was great. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, yeah, man, I'm really happy to help out. There's, this, this is right in my alley. <laughs> like, I teach a course where I talk about a bunch of this sort of stuff. Like, I teach econ, teach financial history, where we talk about redesigning the financial system and what we have to do to you know, survive the future. So, yeah, this is right up my alley. Perfect. Well, really appreciate it. <laughs> Well, that was such an interesting conversation and really ended up going quite a bit broader and into other areas than than I'd anticipated. Like, I didn't expect to be talking about Japanese industrial policy, but uh, I, w- I was happy that it kind of diverted into these other interesting topics. I don't know. What, what stood out to you, Sarah? Well, I mean, besides the fact that we need an entire follow-up episode purely on Japanese robots and how they've integrated into... Totally living over there. Um, I think that every time we have these conversations, it teaches us a little bit about, um, about, I guess, Canada and some of the things that maybe stand in the way uh, of kind of reaching, you know, our, our top kind of peak performance, peak productivity, whatever you want, peak productivity, whatever you want to call it. And so the piece about the provinces being a real hindrance to you know, goods flowing freely between provinces, talent being able to flow freely between provinces. You don't think of that when you see the headline numbers. All you see is that, okay, well, productivity is down 1.5%. And it really helps contextualize because I think all of us know that, you know, it is different. It is difficult to, uh, you know, train as, you know, a specialist in different provinces, get those certifications. It's difficult to kind of innovate your business to move across borders to be able to kind of trade between. So I thought that aspect was quite interesting as well. Yeah, that was certainly interesting. I think the it's kind of a wake-up call when you really compare the numbers between Canada and the United States, just how much richer on average Americans are than Canadians and how much more productive their economy is. Because, I mean, not to diminish the americans but if you go to america you see so much poverty and people living in a standard of life that seems much lower than what you typically see in canada but you know i guess what you don't see is the other side of that which is that some people are are doing very well i think that was an interesting point that will pulled out of that which is yes productivity overall is important and there are these social benefits, society-wide benefits that we all share in, like being able to, you know, run more energy efficiently or take care of old people once they are out of the workforce. But at an individual level, more productivity isn't necessarily going to translate into a higher quality of life for you or a higher income for you. That's really a question of how those gains are shared. A hundred percent. You realize that productivity is not everything. Not that we thought that it was everything, but you thought that it was really important. And it's interesting how highly productive countries like the US, like Japan, the two examples that we went in have very different standards of living when it comes to 
you know, when it comes to one having so much, you know, wealth and equality and the way that, you know, the benefits of the productivity are, I guess, distributed in one country versus another. Um, But going back, I guess, to the individual level, you made such a good point about why as an employee, right, you should care about any of this because the benefits are so far down the line in the future. I think Will made a really compelling case for it. But if you're sitting right now at your desk, like you said, and you have someone you know over your shoulder that's telling you to work faster, work harder, it seems like there's very little incentive for people to do that in the current way of working, I will say. Maybe a little bit more now that we're kind of, you know, we're the risk of maybe, you know, a layoff is is a little bit higher than it was a year ago. And and maybe that's, you know, enough for some people, but overall, there really isn't that much that is, you know, kicking people forward to, to work a bit harder. Totally. And it brought me back to our conversation with Dan Skilleter that we recorded, I don't yes. know, maybe three months ago now about the employee ownership uh, co-ops trust. or yeah, whatever, employee ownership trusts and how some of these businesses, you know, do share these gains with their employees through, stock and equity and that sort of thing. And I would be curious to know if businesses that operate on those model are more productive on average than ones that have the typical corporate structure that we're more more accustomed to because you're totally right. What is the incentive to, you know, put in, you know, 110% like people say <laughs> if you're an employee when you don't share in any of the gains aside from you know, maybe a, an occasional promotion uh, or not getting fired. I guess the only way that we've seen some sort of like ownership structure, employee ownership structure play out at like a really large scale has been in the tech industry. And like the tech industry, like despite not being profitable, like they're all really productive and tech companies are known for, you know, their productivity. And, you know, we had that one case example of this grocery store in the US doing really, yeah. really well because owner employees felt like they had a little piece of the ownership pie. So it's doesn't surprise me why employers are holding back on that. It's not, you know, the first thing you want to do is, is turn over um, ownership to your employees. But I, if that seems, that seems to be a good solution. So maybe we'll see more of that down the line. Yeah. I mean, at least from a society wide perspective, you know, I totally can see, I see why individual employers don't do it because it's not really in their interest, right? But no. <laughs> in the interest of the economy as a whole, perhaps it's uh, something worth thinking more about. Uh, but should we leave it there for now? I think so. Okay, well, this has been another episode of Free Lunch. You can search and follow Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts to get more episodes like this. And subscribe to our daily business newsletter. You can do that at readthepeak.com as well. And we'll see you next week.